The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, August 7th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, President Donald J. Trump is by many measures a mediocre dad, at best mediocre, those measures being Don Jr., Eric, and to a large extent, Ivanka. Barron, he's a work in progress. And that's really it. Those are the known Trump children. Cut to Tiffany saying, what about, yeah, why bother? But you know, if you are a parent, you know that it is very, very hard with the kids these days to get them off their phones. They're like addictive. So doesn't Donald Trump deserve some credit for really authoring his own page in the parenting playbook, doing what hadn't ever been done before, what we parents never considered? Oh, oh, you won't get off TikTok? I will ban TikTok in the United States. Stating that the Chinese company that owns TikTok is a security threat, Donald Trump has enacted a TikTok block. And unlike a lot of his blustery fits of pique, it seems he could actually get away with it this time. Because the president has wide latitude on matters of national security. But his national security, is that really the reason? Oh no, you know what's going on. It's those TikTok teens, those rascals. The TikTok teens ruined the rally in Tulsa, causing Donald Trump to have an ulcer. He called in the Marines to get the teens off their screens, which will be Trump's greatest contribution to the culture. In fact, TikTok has 45 days at which time, quote, any transaction by any person with ByteDance, that's the company, the parent company, or its subsidiaries will be prohibited. Perhaps this will lead of a sale of the company to Microsoft. Perhaps the administration will relent. Maybe the CEO of TikTok will say fawning things about Donald Trump, or better yet, he will deny Sarah Cooper some important editing effects, thus prompting a presidential reversal. It is too early to say for sure, but if I know the TikTok teens, they're going to fight with all their resources and attention up until Instagram invents a better video editing tool. On the show today... I spiel about a dangerous development within America, perhaps the most dangerous. I don't want to give it away, but it's what the Eroica Symphony, Mike Schmidt, and the Shrek film that starred Justin Timberlake have in common. But first, Princeton University professor Eddie Glaude Jr. is an American author, an historian, a public intellectual. James Baldwin was an American novelist, an essayist, a thought leader, a civil rights activist. Glaude has long revered Baldwin, but a few years ago, he began to get very serious about this because, as he writes in his new book, Begin Again, the idea of America is in deep trouble. Just as it was when Baldwin wrote The Fire Next Time back in 1963, arguably throughout Baldwin's entire life, Eddie Glaude is here to talk James Baldwin, how the black vote can be courted and not taken for granted, and also I ask him about his 2016 advice to vote against Hillary Clinton. Eddie Glaude Jr. up next. (laughs) 
Begin Again is the name of the new book by Princeton professor Eddie Glaude Jr. The subtitle is James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And I have to say, and this comes through in this amazing new work, that the lessons for America certainly changed as of the conception and writing of the book. The America of Donald Trump smacked us all in the face. And what Eddie Glaude did was say, essentially, how did we get this wrong? How did I get this wrong? And the answer went back to, to some extent, I forgot what James Baldwin has been telling me all these years. Eddie Glaude, welcome to The Gist. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So after Trump was elected, and I want to talk a little bit about um, many of the policy prescriptions and voting prescriptions that you made before that election, did it smack you in the face or did it gradually dawn upon you that had you listened to Baldwin all along, you might not have been so surprised? I think more than anything, I would not have overestimated white America. I was of the view that it was utterly impossible that the country would elect someone so visibly unqualified to be the leader of the free world. And so I thought I had the space to do some work to try to break the back of a certain kind of corporate hole on the Democratic Party and some ways to break the silence that we we had experienced over the eight years with, with the Obama administration with regards to what was happening in black communities and the like. Like you said, if you know, I, I should have known better as a as a lifelong reader of Baldwin, that we were on the precipice of what I call in the book the aftertimes, or what some people would call a backlash. We were in the middle of it, and I should have known better. So as you went back and reflected on Baldwin, and you know, if I talked to you in 2008 or 2012 before you embarked on this project, how long would you have gone, for instance, since the last time you read James Baldwin? Oh, I just finished teaching a course. You know, I teach a seminar <laughs> of Baldwin like every year. I teach a seminar in his nonfiction, you know. So I've been walking with him for at least 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. So I read him regularly. So this is a re-examination and getting to really um, digest his works, but you're never that far from him. No, you're so, absolutely right. Yeah. He's, he's a walking, I call him a walking partner. And you call him Jimmy and um, you never actually met him. He died in 87. You were, I think, an undergrad at Morehouse at the time. But here's my question. The fire next time and... You know, this comes out in 1963, and that's one James Baldwin. And then he moves from there, and maybe it's exaggerated. I don't think he repudiates himself like some of his uh, critics, and I mean that not in the pejorative sense, but people who've looked at him said, you know, the James Baldwin of The Fire Next Time and the James Baldwin of, you know, the 1970s were two different people. I think it's more of an evolution. But which one was the one that you would reflect on when you say something like, I'm, I, I had to remind myself not to forget the lessons of James Baldwin? Sometimes they were two different lessons. Well, you know, I mean, the wonderful thing about Baldwin is that, you know, teaching him over all these years is that there's a commonality of theme that runs from the younger Baldwin to the older Baldwin. He's just thinking about those themes under different material conditions. So what does it mean for the late Jimmy Baldwin to think or to say, right, that, you know, sometimes African-Americans just have to vote just to buy themselves some time. This is what he says in response to the 1980 election between Carter and, and Reagan, right? How is Baldwin responding to the country turning its back on the black freedom struggle after the assassination of Dr. King? What is he doing when the country doubles down on, on its ugliness with the election of Richard Nixon in 68? 
and the appeal to the forgotten American or the silent majority and the hard hat rebellion and da 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 da. And what is he seeing as this, as these economic shifts happen? And then Ronald Reagan is on the horizon. And we must remember for most activists, Reagan was like, for most black activists, Reagan was the equivalent of George Wallace. Right? I mean, he was that notorious among black activists during this period. For the country to elect him, of all people, represented you know, this, this clear shutting of the door. So for me, I'm reaching for, at least in Begin Again, I'm reaching for the late Jimmy, the Jimmy that people think is bitter. His rage has overrun everything. The one who, according to some critics, has lost a touch, has gone bad in the teeth. He's no longer attentive to his craft. He's, his aesthetic, his art has become subordinate to polemic and politics. I think all of that is wrong. And if we read him closely, we'll see that the very things that animated the early Jimmy, he's thinking about them under these conditions of betrayal. That's the shift. It's almost like the shift in the atmospherics, you know, the oxygen is still there, but suddenly the clouds come in. The thunder is happening, right? And it's raining cats and dogs. You see what I mean? That's where I tend to locate my own feet when it comes to uh, this book and when it comes to Bolt. He understood the interplay between culture and politics very well. Oh, absolutely. And in some ways, he, he took it even one step, uh, one step deeper, I think. Uh, he understood that our political world, our political lives, our social, political, and economic arrangements, the mess that they are, that the, the disastrous nature of them, are actually a reflection of the messiness of us, of each of us as individuals. Right? That, that, that the lies that we tell ourselves about who we are are then reflected in the lies that, that inform and shape our social arrangements. So there's this demand, uh, we might even describe it as a kind of Socratic dictum, about the unexamined life isn't worth living. So there's this demand in Baldwin's work that we take an honest look at ourselves as a precondition to say anything about the country. If he was writing and thinking and working at a time when the gay rights movement was in full flourish, and by the end it had gotten bigger, but certainly not when he first met MLK, who had his own thoughts and writings about uh, gay rights, how would his professional life have been different, do you think? You know, that's fascinating. Baldwin is this amazingly courageous figure, you know, first of all. When I interviewed Angela Davis for the book, she, she said to me, you know, with a look of astonishment and amazement, you know, in so many ways, Eddie, Jimmy was all out there by himself. You know, the fact that his second book that followed up, Go Tell It on the Mountain, was Giovanni's Room, a book about love, same-sex love, right? And he would say, you know, you couldn't hold that over my head, I told you. You know, he was out in a, in a moment where being out literally invited danger. But at the same time, Baldwin was very skeptical of these categories that hemmed us in, that to define him as this queer black man, this gay black man, and that would become, right, the overarching uh, identity for him, he would chafe under such descriptions. And you see this, for example, in the last interview uh, and other conversations edited by Quincy Troop, when, he, when someone is trying to uh, interview him and trying to get him to, to identify with the gay liberation movement in a way that he doesn't feel comfortable with, and, and you can see him literally deconstructing the categories that limit our understanding of ourselves, right? So I think on the one level, on one level, he would have been freer to do even more work. But I think on another level, Mike, he, he would have in some ways 
being the critical poet that he was, he would want to show us how a certain understanding of sexuality could actually release the trap. What would James Baldwin have made of the Robin D'Angelo white fragility phenomenon? The phenomenon being that <laughs> this is the number one bestseller and there is uh, among a certain substrata of the white population a desire to uh, confront one's own complicity. You know, I, don't, I, I never dare to, to try to put words in his mouth because there, there's 7,000 pages of his words. So, yeah. so, so I don't, I don't try, to, try to anticipate what he would say. I know what I would say, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, D'Angelo is doing a great work with, with the book, but there's a, you know, it's a corporate strategy, right? It comes out of a particular world in which we're trying to manage difference in specific sorts of ways. When I used to read Jimmy with my friends in graduate school, he would make them uncomfortable. You know, there would be red cheeks, blushes, the ground felt scorched. Um, one one black friends or white friends? White friends. Uh huh. He and I would have to manage their uncomfortable uh, position, right? And so one asked, one has to ask the question: Is white fragility making anybody uncomfortable? So I do want to now go back and remind my listeners of what your position was before last election, which is, <laughs> which is, and I saw this, I was just rewatching a debate I remember that you had with Michael Eric Dyson, and he was on the show to also talk about his uh, Jimmy Baldwin book, which is about this great meeting that he had with RFK, although maybe he didn't think it was so great. So Dyson's point was, you got to vote for Hillary Clinton because the lesser of the two evils is, of course, less evil. And your point was that you thought that people could strategically vote and reject the entire project that uh, the Clintons represented and Hillary herself embodied. So did you think you got that wrong? You know, looking back, um, yeah, in, in, in the sense that, as we said earlier, that, you know, I overestimated white America and... I hadn't quite concluded at the time that we were in a particular moment in the country, right, where people were doubling down on their ugly commitments in very, very clear ways. I was thinking that coming out of eight years of Obama, where we had to mute uh, issues of race in order to protect his flank, where we couldn't really hail the state in a particular sort of way. Remember, we lost a decade of gains, the whole 90s were wiped out for black America because of the Great Recession. And now that's been followed by, by you know, this global pandemic. So black America has been devastated in this moment, no matter how we talk about the unemployment numbers and the like. And so what I was thinking is that we have a chance to pull the Democratic Party to the left. Uh, we saw the energy of the Bernie campaign. I wasn't a Bernie Sanders, I wasn't officially a Bernie Sanders supporter. But my, my strategy was, let's pull the Democratic Party to the left. And I remember reacting viscerally to Mike's attempt to locate the Clinton candidacy with the best of the black freedom tradition. That bothered the hell out of me, that people were trying to draw a line from the bad story around Obama straight to Clinton as a way of mobilizing black voters. So in retrospect, we all, at least I didn't, recognize the existential threat that Donald Trump represented to the country and to black folk. Right. 
And so I saw you a couple uh, weeks ago, maybe it was longer than that, when you kind of called out Steve Schmidt on MSNBC because he kept going on about what an existential threat Donald Trump was, but then said, but I can't vote for Bernie Sanders. And your point, I think, quite trenchantly was, well, if he's this great threat, then how is it that he's not so much of a threat that Bernie Sanders couldn't earn your vote? And then I was retroactively applying that argument of Eddie Glaude 2019 (laughs) to Eddie Glaude 2016. But I think you did answer the question. It's not that you misunderestimated how terrible Trump would be if he were president. You misunderstood, and I think a lot of us did, the chances of him actually becoming president. Absolutely. And see, the thing is that people are putting this on the shoulders of working class, high school educated white men. And when you look at the data, that's not it's not just them. College educated suburban white women, white men. I mean, he won, in effect, the white vote. Right. Um, yeah. When we look when we break down the no, numbers. Right? No, quite clearly. White, yeah. Quite overwhelmingly. Overwhelming. Yeah. And so you kind of say, well, wait a minute. Right. So what's going on here? And, and when I started, when I looked at the exit poll data and, and I said, oh, my goodness, there's some folks here who um, in the midst of, of all that has happened and is happening, there's some folk who really are invested in this idea of, of America being a white nation. And it cuts across class, it cuts across education and status, and it intersects with abject greed. Because that's Trump's sweet spot. He appeals to racist and he appeals to people's self-interest and greed. Yeah, when I look back upon it, I would have made a different decision, I think. Although I'm still convinced that we cannot have black people be a captured electorate. We gotta figure out how to engage this process without political parties and politicians treating black voters like cattle chewing cud. Right, and I'm sympathetic Uh, Probably more than sympathetic. It's actually in my uh, interests for black people not to be a captured electorate. And yet I say to myself, if one party is just going to plant a flag in the ground and say uh, our entire modus operandi is to be a white party, an anti-black party, and we are a two-party system, which we seem to be, then what choice do black people have? I mean, it's putting black people in a horrible position to both be able to say we want to be respected and courted, courted for our votes, but at the same time, of course we could never throw our lot in with one of the two parties in the United States. Well, where does that leave us? It leaves us with Democrats triangulating, creating policies that will devastate the working, you know, black working class and black working poor. You think about, you know, so-called welfare reform in the Clinton years and what it did to black communities, how it deepened those who, who fell into extreme poverty. You think about the expansion of the criminal code, where you can damn near sneeze in this country and break a law as people were kind of racing to the bottom to show that they were tough on crime and how Democrats, in so many ways, as my colleague Naomi Mirakawa writes in in her book, The First Civil Right, how liberals built prison America, right? How Democrats contributed in building, uh, you know, putting in place the infrastructure for mass incarceration in this country, right? So what what do we do, right? What is revealed in that moment? Because you're right, you got these folk who have planted the, their flag on white supremacy, and you got these other folk who are saying, well, black folk, you know you really can't go over to them, so we can continue to do what we want to do, which might necessarily not be in your interest. But we're the lesser of two evils. 
So at that point, you got to really ask yourself some difficult questions. What do you do? And then that's when Baldwin's insights that sometimes you vote to buy yourself some time. Sometimes you say to hell with all both of you. Sometimes you, you turn your attention to the local and state arenas, right? But the one thing you cannot do is let the white folk who are in, or not shouldn't just say white folk, Mike, to let the leaders of the Democratic Party off the damn hook. We can't do that. Do you have uh, hopes, optimism? I know Nyber talked about both of those, but do you have, <laughs> what are your thoughts about a Biden presidency? Well, you know, we got to walk and chew gum at the same time. We got to get Donald Trump out of office and we, got, we cannot go back to, to we cannot allow uh, an idea of normalcy, a return to normalcy, arrest our imaginations. The country is broken. I mean, it's clear. Um, it's broken. And, you know, I'm reminded of King's speech uh, in Montgomery after the Selma March in 65. And he says, you know, he says, people are clamoring for us to get back to normal. And then he says, let me tell you what was normal. And then he starts listing all of the murders, all of the violence, right, of the, that moment that people call normal, right? So we're not going back to normal because what was normal was broken. So we have to push for a radical reimagining of this place because American democracy will not survive, right, if we think that the only thing we need to do is to go back to what we were doing before Donald Trump. Eddie Glaud is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and his new book is called Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Thank you so much, Eddie. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you, man. And now the spiel. I have discovered the most dangerous entity in America. Is it the virus? Well, now it is. But what I'm thinking about has been with us for years, actually, all right? Is it an invasive species like the Japanese beetle or the big head carp? No, it is indigenous. Okay, so it's persistent and endemic. Is it an epidemic, maybe a silent epidemic, maybe obesity? It is not. It is not quite as prevalent as obesity, which 40% of the American public has. In fact, it's 33% of the American population. So what is it, you asked? Oh, I just told you, the most dangerous phenomenon in America is 33% of the American people. A third of the American people believe in nonsense. A third of the American people doubt truth. A third of the American people are in favor of disaster. A third of the American people will lead the rest of us to ruin. So I mentioned the coronavirus. Well, listen to where a third of the American people are on that. Here is NPR quoting the president. He tweeted yesterday that the U.S. has done much better than most other countries dealing with COVID-19. Do Americans agree with him? In a word, no. I mean, two-thirds of people we surveyed say America is doing worse than other countries. So, a third think it's doing just as good or better a job than the rest of the world. They are wrong. They are demonstrably wrong. Here in his interview with Axios's Jonathan Swan, it was President Trump himself who made the presentation. Take a look at some of these charts. I'd love to. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, per, started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than We're the lower world. than what is that? Europe. In oh, what? Look. In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. 
Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the case. Now, maybe a third of Americans didn't see that report. Maybe a third of Americans don't want to know that. Maybe a third of Americans have come to incorrect conclusions for other reasons because of understandable or lamentable phenomena that it is important for the other two thirds of us to understand. And I agree with that. It's important to know both as citizen and anthropologist what's leading this third of the American people wrong. But the point is a third of the American people are so very wrong on so many things. They believe things that are the opposite of the truth not just on the most important issue of the day, and not just on some things, on lots of things. 31% of Americans believe that COVID-19, the death toll, is less than officially reported. That is up from 23% in May. So that's about a third. Back in April, Pew found that 30% of Americans believe scientists created COVID-19. Nope. Pew also found that most Americans have heard the conspiracy theory that the COVID-19 outbreak was planned. And guess what fraction of those say that it might be true? About a third. About a third of Americans say blackface in a Halloween costume is acceptable. About a third in the U.S. see God's hand in presidential elections. Let us say that again, but not us the host of a very skeptical YouTube show. According to new data released by Pew Research, roughly one third of people in this country believe that God herself has their hand in picking the United States president. Two thirds of Americans think the government should do more on climate. All right, but guess what that means? One third thinks they shouldn't, we're fine. One third of Americans polled by the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center believe the conspiracy theory back in 2016 that the Zika virus was purposefully spread by genetically modified mosquitoes. As Kurt Anderson points out, a third of Americans believe a lot of other stuff that they shouldn't believe. A third of Americans believe that global warming is a hoax. A third of Americans believe that humans have always been the same, unchanged and unevolved, and that the government today is hiding natural cures for cancer. That was Kurt talking about his book, Fantasyland, about how so many Americans believe so many untrue things. And of course, and what got me thinking about this in the first time was I heard that one third of Americans think we're doing pretty good on Corona. And I remembered what another third of Americans believed. A third of Americans believed in birtherism at the heights, or if you want to call it the depths of the birtherism scam, one third of Americans thought the president of the United States was not born in the United States. Now, a third of all Americans we know are wrong. A third of Americans are, on all these issues I've talked about, are deluded. A third of all Americans are pretty dangerous. (sighs) Have you heard that old joke? A woman gives birth in this country once every seven seconds. We've got to find this woman and stop her. A third of all Americans conceptually is a little like that. Actually, it's not that much like that. It's more like this old joke. Half of all advertising dollars are wasted. The problem is no one knows which half. So the third of all Americans, they're not the same group from misimpression to misimpression, not the same third. You can't just find all the people with wackadoo ideas and say, that's it, you guys, over there. 
The same people who slide into, say, an anti-vaxxer conspiracy theory might also be a climate change activist, so not in the one-third who thinks we're doing enough. A birther might also have a family member who died of COVID-19, so that person knows coronavirus is real or maybe worse than they say it is. But it's not random. It's not perfectly random. Susceptibility to conspiracy theories or just incorrect thinking is endemic in certain populations. And there is a confluence, of course, between the birtherism that propelled Donald Trump into office and the QAnon ideas that keep him there. Not all Trump supporters are loons, not all loons are Trump supporters, but there is a significant statistical correlation. It is almost shocking that America as a country has gotten this far. Because, just as Kurt points out in Fantasyland, it was always thus in the U.S. We are highly susceptible to highly suspicious theories. So how have we managed to avoid, for so long, our comeuppance? I don't know. Maybe for many years, the stakes have been low. Didn't matter if you were engaged in subsistence farming or the basic rudiments of trade. If you had an odd theory about the Masons, let's say. Maybe it's that we've gotten the big things right. Democracy does seem generally better than autocracy. Success in the really important wars, the wars of non-choice, that have papered over the third to whom we've extended the franchise and then use it to pursue their addle-brained ideas. Or else there's this. Maybe we haven't been able to avoid the consequences of cuckoo credulity. Global warming is something like the slow motion version of the coronavirus, and we're not getting that right. The good thing about the third of the American people is A, they're not the two thirds. In fact, they're outnumbered by a two to one ratio. And maybe it's the case that those of us in the two thirds know some of the people in the third and can convince them or humor them or hide their keys on election day. Either way, Just because a backward way of thinking is ubiquitous and perennial doesn't mean it's not extremely dangerous. I trust that you are in total, or at least two-thirds agreement. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He is not among the one-third of Americans who say they would be upset if the national anthem were to be lip-synced at the Super Bowl. Margaret Kelly, gist producer, counts herself among the one-third of Americans who say Monopoly and other games of its type were the only financial education she ever had growing up. Alicia Montgomery is among the one-third of Americans surveyed who say the leading source of pet-related cleaning tensions in their home is hair, dust bunnies, and or shedding. The gist. And yes, I am among the one-third of Americans surveyed who say they would not encourage their children to pursue a manufacturing career today. And that is because... One child is 11, the other is 13, and neither can be trusted to operate a lathe. And tariffs. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.